God has something specific to say this morning, not just to mothers who have born children in the natural, but to women. I believe the Spirit of God wants to empower the women of the house today to understand that you have a powerful place and a powerful purpose in God's end-time agenda. How many know we're living in the last days? And how many know that living in the last days means that God is working on something? He's doing stuff that we can't see. He's doing stuff that we don't understand. And God has an end-time agenda, an end-time program that he is actively bringing to pass. What I want to say to you women today is that you have a powerful part to play in God's end-time agenda. Now, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, I want us to see something that I hope will bring clarity. I want to teach in a way today, hopefully, that will set people free and that will give you clarity where there might have been confusion. And what I want to do is authorize the women of the house to rise up in your hearts and minds and to take the place that you were destined to take. Because what happens so often is that young ladies, young women and old women alike, disqualify themselves in their hearts and minds, think more lowly of themselves than they ought to think. And, and you know, we're so afraid of pride, but what happens is we, we opt for over-humility. It becomes inferiority. And, and inferiority is not a good thing. God wants to break that off of you. There is a godly pride that would cause your heart to swell with confidence that says, I know who I am in God, and I know what I can do in God, and, and this is my Bible, and I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. <laughs> Come on, somebody. We need a little Joel Osteen in your life sometimes. And so I want to I authorize you to, to, to allow your hearts to swell up with that level of godly confidence. And, and, but in order to do so, I believe we're going to, we're going to deconstruct uh, uh, some of the things that would hinder women from taking their place in the body of Christ. I'm looking at Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. And in Galatians 3, 28, Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Let's all say that whole verse together. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. How many know that when God looks down on this gathering right here in this room today, He does not see a group of Hispanics, black folks, white folks, and Asians? He doesn't even see that differentiation. He doesn't segregate us in his mind or in his heart. How many know when God looks in this room today, he doesn't see a a mixture of poor folks, rich folks, and middle class folk. He does not separate us as far as our economic status is concerned. He doesn't put us into economic categories. And how many know that when God looks at this gathering today, he doesn't see a bunch of men and women? Now, it doesn't mean that we're genderless in his eyes any more than we're without economic status or any more than we're without ethnic identity. God does see our ethnic identities, but he does not judge on the basis of them. And he does see our gender identities, but he does not judge on the basis of them. He does, he does see our economic identity, our economic status, but he does not make a judgment on the basis of it. We are all one in Christ. Peter said it this way in Acts chapter 10. He said, for I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. Look at your neighbor and say, God does not respect you. God does not respect you. 
God's got no respect for you. He doesn't respect you at all. He doesn't respect you more than somebody else. You know, it's funny. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm an African-American, by the way. Just to, um, Some of you don't know that. It's not obvious. Okay. But I am African-American. Okay. Ethnically, 50%. Okay. Culturally, more than 50%. Okay. I'm 50% African-American, about 25% Native American in my blood. But culturally, I'm not Native American at all. 12.5% Irish in my blood. But culturally, I ain't got none of Ireland in me, okay? I got more ghetto in me than Ireland, okay? So I am African-American. And, 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 you know, people you know, make jokes about that because I'm light-skinned. Really? You're barely black. You know, I used to get in fights about that when I was young. I used to get so mad when people would say, you don't look black? Really? Do I look white? Do I look, what do I do? Do I look Mexican? You know, what do I look? Do I look something, okay? Give me something. Come on. You know, don't rob me of my ethnic identity because I'm not, you know, dark, dark black. I used to pray. I, was, I used to pray that the Lord would make me darker. Please make me darker so I could really be black. I wanted, I wanted to be Mandingo black, you know? That's what I wanted, you know? If people would stop telling me I'm not black. I finally realized I'm as black as I'm going to get. Okay? I'm just not going to get any blacker. But there's, there's something about being a young African-American man. There's something instilled in us. It's funny. I was talking to my dad about it. He said he grew up the same way. He experiences the same thing. Whenever I'm around an older Caucasian gentleman wearing slacks, a dress shirt, and a tie, I immediately elevate him in my mind. Like I think he's just at a higher level. Like I just immediately respect him. Why? Because of the way he looks. And I have to, like, try to fort, like, he's a man. He's just a person. You know what I mean? Like, he's not like any, I mean, just like any other man, you know? Why do you elevate him? But I immediately, I have this thing where just I, sometimes I get intimidated because of the way people look. And I told my dad, I said, why do I have that? He said, because you're black. He said, I battled that my entire life. Just a, a, a tendency to see myself as somewhat inferior. Knowing in my heart, but I'm not inferior. Amen. I mean, this guy might not have a tenth of the education I have. Just because he could put on a pair of slacks and a dress shirt, I respect him. God does not look at anyone and elevate them even in iota because of the way they look. He's not looking at the outward appearance. He looks at the heart, and that's why he chose David and not his good-looking, well-dressed brothers. What I'm saying to you today is that women, historically, even women who know in their heart that they carry a high level of greatness, know that they have gifts, know that they have callings, know that they're full of excellence, still have to fight this little lingering sense of inferiority. But I'm not a man. But there's some stuff that only the man should do. God wants to break that inferiority off of you today. And he wants to tell you who you really are. Now Paul says, there's neither Jew nor Greek. And then he says, 
There's neither slave nor free. And then he says there's neither male nor female. And I want you to understand that the order of these three things is eschatologically significant. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that when Paul made this statement in Galatians 3.28, and he made it somewhere around 50 A.D., which was like almost 2,000 years ago, like 1,930 years ago, 40 years ago, okay? He was, that statement established God's program for the next 2,000 years. In other words, what God was speaking through Paul was that systematically God was going to dismantle the human tendency to make distinctions in these places. He was going to tear down the wall of enmity between the two in each of these situations. He was going to make the two one. He was going to bring about an equality and a restoration, a a mutual respect. He was going to do away with the sense of inferiority, but he was going to do it historically and systematically. And he wasn't going to do it all in the first century. Paul says, in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek. And that's the first one God dealt with. He released that revelation very clearly in the early church. So Peter, he's on the roof praying after the morning prayer meeting. And he's hungry. How many, how many get hungry after you pray? <laughs> See, if you haven't prayed enough to get hungry, you, you, you don't know how to pray yet. <laughs> Come on, somebody. Prayer makes you hungry. And so he goes up to the roof. And he begins to pray while they're making his food. And he went deep in the spirit. He went so deep in the spirit, he started snoring. How many ever been there? You ever fell asleep praying? And then woke up and repented? You know, I used to do that, try to pray all night. Oh, hallelujah. Oh, oh Lord, I'm sorry. Oh, God. I'm sorry. I used to do that back in college. Peter went into the spirit and started snoring. How do I know that? Because it says God spoke to him in a dream. And in order for God to give you a dream, you got to be asleep. And in his dream, he saw a sheep come down. And on the sheep, there's both clean and unclean animals. The background, ancient Judaism. In, in, in Judaism, in the law, there's things that are clean and there's things that are unclean. God said the following animals, feel free to kill and eat them. Hallelujah. We do not serve a vegetarian God. Praise praise Jesus. Mm. I am a carnitarian to the bone. Hey, hey. But God said, these animals over here, they're unclean. Do not kill and eat them. Now, see, I, you know, I was so thankful for the cross of Jesus Christ because pigs were in that category of unclean animal. And Jesus declared all foods clean. Can I get a witness for a ham sandwich? That's why I couldn't be Muslim. I couldn't do it. They'd be, they would excommunicate me my first week. Come and find me eating bacon. Put me out the church. But the first century Christians, these, the, the, the disciples, the 120 in the upper room plus the 12, right? 
They had not become good Gentiles yet. See, we think, you know, in our day and time, if you want to be a Christian, you got to be a Gentile first. Somebody asked me one time, can Jews be saved too? And I thought, that's funny. If you go back to the first century church, it was the opposite question. They thought it was only, even the first, even the disciples thought it was only Jews that were going to be saved. And they still, I mean, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, they still went to the temple every day and made sacrifices. They still lived according to the law, completely abstaining. And so God says, I'm going to break this up real quick. Give Peter revelation. A sheet comes down. Clean and unclean animals. And a voice says, get up, Peter. Kill and eat. Peter, dinner time. Kill and eat. And Peter says, not so, Lord. Hold on a second. Now, if you're telling the Lord no. Not so, Lord. If he, if he'd have an excuse if he didn't know it was the Lord. But he says, Lord. He knew it was the Lord. No, Lord. What you're asking me to do is unbiblical. what he says. I've never eaten anything unclean or common. Now, let me ask you this question. Why didn't Peter say, Lord, I'll eat the clean animals, but not the unclean? Why didn't he say that? Because there's something called the defilement by association paradigm in ancient Israel. This is important. You've got to get this. In, according to the defilement by association paradigm, when something that is unclean touches something that's clean, the clean becomes unclean. So you can have something perfectly clean, put it in a room with something that's unclean, bam, the clean is unclean. And they get that right from the law of Moses. The law of Moses said, if we're in a room right here and somebody dies, everybody in the room is unclean because we're in the presence of death. We've all been defiled. If you touch somebody who's sick, you're unclean, you're defiled. This defilement by association paradigm was so... That's why when Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan, there was a Levite and he saw a man in the ditch bleeding. The Levite crossed the street. Woo, I ain't touching that. Why? Defilement. He's afraid he's going to get defiled. If he touches this dead man, he can't go to the temple to worship. It wasn't just lack of compassion. He's trying to be a good Jew. But then Jesus said a Good Samaritan didn't care about getting dirty picked the man up, put him on his own donkey, took him and, and got him healed. So in Peter's vision, the clean animals have been mixed with unclean animals. They used to be clean. Now that they've been mixed with unclean animals, they're what they call common. So Peter says, I've never eaten anything unclean or common. Can't eat the clean ones either. They've been mixed with the unclean. And the Lord says, what I have cleansed, do not call unclean. And the dream repeats three times. Do you know the significance of that dream? Literally what God is saying is, I have reversed the order. I've now cleansed the unclean animals because they've been in the presence of the clean. Jesus instituted the sanctification by association paradigm. Reverse the defilement by association paradigm. Jesus did it all the time. That's why Jesus would touch lepers. It wasn't because power was coming through his hand. 
you know, we do that whole thing in Christian, you know, touch, release power. Is it power is going to come through my body? No. When Jesus said to put your hands on sick people, what he was saying is stop being so afraid of defilement. Oh, amen. Jesus was saying, you think he can defile me? No, I'm going to make him clean. You think he can make me dirty? Jesus touched dead people. He was supposed to be unclean, but instead that dead person would come back to life. Jesus, nothing could soil him. Nothing could make him dirty. Instead, he made everything around him clean. You hear what I'm saying? So Peter has this dream, and God says in the dream, I'm getting ready to reverse the order. He wakes up from the dream. He says, Lord, what does this mean? And the Holy Spirit speaks to him and says, there's people waiting for you downstairs. Go with them without asking any questions. So he's thinking, who's waiting for me downstairs? You know who's waiting for him downstairs? Some Gentiles. Why? Because their master's name was Cornelius. Cornelius was a Roman centurion. And Cornelius was what's called a God-fearer. Can I teach a little bit this morning? Is that okay? I know this isn't just a run-of-the-mill sermon. I'm giving you something. Cornelius was a God-fearer. Do you know who the God-fearers were? They were a group of Gentiles that were attracted to the God of Israel. And so they would go to the synagogues, which were, which were Greek-speaking Jewish places of worship. They would listen to the reading of the law and the prophets. And they wanted so badly to be Jews, but they weren't willing to get circumcised. Because when you're 38 years old, and to become a Jew, you've got to get circumcised. Can you imagine if I, I did the altar call, who wants to receive Jesus? And you stand up and I take out a knife. What are you doing? Only way to receive Jesus is public circumcision. When nobody gets saved. So there were always proselytes. There were proselytes. Proselytes were individuals. They were Gentiles. And they converted fully to Judaism. I mean, they were willing to get cut. I mean, that is commitment. But when Paul would go preach in the synagogues, the first thing he would say is, salvation is through faith in, in Jesus, not through circumcision. And all the God-fearers would go, I'm going with you. Amen. And he would take all the God-fearers out, and he would start his church next door. But had Peter not had his experience on the, on the roof, that would have been possible. So Peter, the Lord says, go with them, don't ask any questions. He goes downstairs, he says, who are you and what do you want? They said, our master's name is Cornelius, he's a God-fearer. He's a Gentile, a Roman, but a God-fearer. And he was praying the other night. And an angel appeared to him and said, God sees your heart. He hears your prayers. And he wants you to be saved. So here's what you do. Go send for a man named Peter and hear whatever he tells you. So that's why we're here. Peter said, this is interesting. Okay, let's go. They go to his house. When he enters Cornelius' house, the place is packed full of people. Cornelius is there. And Peter says, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. But in any nation where anybody seeks him, he makes himself known. Hear that? Peter says, I perceive. Now I realize that our ethnic superiority just went out the door. Now I realize that this salvation thing is not just for the Jews, but it's also for the Greeks. That in Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile. And Peter preached the gospel right there, and everybody got saved. Not only that, the Holy Spirit fell, and everybody started speaking in tongues. So Peter goes back to the church, and the church goes, You entered the house of Gentiles and ate with them? And Peter says, Yeah. They said, Well, what is your biblical grounds? And Peter says, They received the Spirit the same way we did. 
That's my biblical grounds. They got the Holy Ghost. The same way we got the Holy Ghost. They were speaking in tongues. It was, there was evidence that God was doing a marvelous work. How can I resist God? So then they said, well, where do we see this in Scripture? And somebody said, ah, didn't he say he was going to make us a light to the Gentiles? That we'd be for his salvation to the ends of the earth? That's what he's doing there. They saw the work of God first and then interpreted the word of God in light of what God was doing. Keep that in mind. So the Jew-Greek thing, God worked it out. First century church. Done. Read Acts 15. It's all about the Jew-Greek thing. I mean, the entire Jerusalem church embraced it. In Christ, there is no Jew nor Greek, but there was still slave and free. Paul says in Christ, there's no slave and free, but he does not attack the institution of slavery. Instead, he says, slaves, obey your masters. Not just the good ones, but the ones who, even the ones who are harsh. Because you serve the Lord Christ. Masters, be nice to your slaves. Note, why, doesn't, why doesn't Paul attack the institution of slavery and say, all of you slave masters out there who are Christians, shame on you. Release your slaves. Do you know what kind of economic trouble he would have caused? Those slaves would have had no provision. They would have been on the street. He knew God was not giving him the revelation to reverse that particular problem. He knew that in Christ there's no difference. But God was not giving it to him to fix it. Do you realize that when Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation in 1865, that was a historic outworking of a revelation that began when Paul wrote that? It took 1,800 and some years for that revelation. Do you realize that wars have been fought over the, over, over the outworking of that revelation? Suddenly, that revelation is spreading across the world. In Christ, there is no slave or free. And when, as people are waking up to that revelation, they're realizing, we've got to abolish slavery. And now we're looking at the whole phenomenon of human trafficking. Realizing that there's more than 17 million slaves in the world right now. But people are rising up and saying, we've got to end this. Why? Because in Christ, there is no slave or free. That distinction has been done away with by the blood of Jesus Christ. And it took 1,800 years. But suddenly now that revelation is working itself out. And we're coming against that whole thing of slavery. But what about male or female? Do you realize that up until 1919, women still could not vote in the United States of America? Isn't it funny that Paul said in Christ there's no male nor female? But yet we still live like there's male and female. All the way up until 1919, women could not even vote in America. That revelation is just now beginning to unfold itself. And in actuality, God made it plain all the way back in Joel 2.28 and following that the last days would be marked by a universal outpouring of the Holy Spirit in which both men and women would receive equal airtime. God said, in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Now, go back through the Hebrew scriptures and tell me which one of the prophets was a woman. Malachi, Zechariah, Hosea, Micah, Nahum, Obadiah. 
There's not one book that was written by a female prophet. Not one. But the prophet Joel, and yes, there were some female prophets in the Old Testament, but they didn't get a book. The prophet Joel said, the last days will be marked by such a universal outpouring of the Holy Spirit that men and women will get equal prophetic airtime. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young, women, your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Upon my servants and my handmaidens will I pour out of my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. God spoke it through the prophet Joel and on the day of Pentecost, Peter quoted that passage and said, this is the beginning of that. God has begun it now. Let me tell you something. God begun it on the day of Pentecost, but now he's expanding it and expanding it. And he's working it out and working it out and working it out. And now in these last days, we're going to see more and more women rising up and taking their place in the body of Christ. And God putting the prophetic word in their mouth. And they're going to begin to speak the word of the Lord in such a way that's going to open prison doors for those in chains of bondage. That's going to set captives free. That's going to open the eyes of the blind. That's going to proclaim the acceptance year of the Lord. I'm saying that this is the day in which God is raising up an army of women that will rise up and say the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. This is the day. This is the time. But if that's the case, then why? Why would Paul make statements like he did over here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verse 34? Let your women keep silent in the church. Let your women keep silent in the church. Now think about that. What if we applied that verse? I mean, what if we applied it literally? I mean, women couldn't sing. Couldn't say amen. Just zip. Can you imagine the most talkative woman? She's outside. Oh, what's up, girl? How you doing, girl? I like them shoes. I'm going to see. Oh, we're going to the church. <laughs> Can't say a word. Do you think that's what Paul really meant? No. Let your women just keep silent in the church. Why would Paul say that? What was Paul on when he said that? What was he thinking? Why would he make a statement like that? First thing I want to say is that that word should be translated quiet, not silent. Later on, Paul makes a statement and he uses the same word. He says that we should live quiet lives. Notice they translate that word quiet there, not silent. Can you imagine living a silent life? Your whole life. What do you think Paul meant when he said we should live quiet lives? Non-disruptive. Not that we should never speak. But that we should be non-disruptive. And when Paul said, let your women keep quiet in the church, what he meant was, let them be non-disruptive. The big problem in the Corinthian church was disruption. There was prophetic disruptions. And Paul said, stop all of that mess. And there was tongues disruptions. You know, people standing up in the middle of the service. You know what I mean? Just interrupting the whole. And Paul said, cut that out. And people, you know, so everybody has a song and it, there was this disruption. And Paul said, stop all of that. And then he gets to the end of it. He says, that, and let your women be non-disruptive in the church. Why? 
cultural situation. The men sat on one side, the women sat on the other side, and there was an opening in the wall, and the women, that was their only source of hearing the service, was through that opening in the wall, and women were yelling through to their husbands to ask them what the preacher said. Hey, Ron! Ron, what'd he say? Hey! Hey, Rob! What'd he say? What'd he say? What'd he say? Paul says, tell the women to ask their husbands when they get home. Instead of disrupting the worship service. He didn't mean that a woman should just come and just sit and be absolute silent. I heard somebody say recently that a woman should never sh- even share the gospel with anybody. Even outside of the church. And somebody asked him, so wait a minute. If somebody's about to die and go to hell and nobody's around but a woman. You're saying she should not share the gospel of Jesus Christ with that man. And he said, she should keep her mouth shut. I thought that is ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. In Christ, there is no male or female. We're all one in Christ. God is no respecter of persons. I remember I grew up, my my grandmother was a... um, National evangelist with the Church of God in Christ. And I used to love to go hear her preach. But I always wondered why she had to preach from the floor. See, in the Church of God in Christ, the pastor has a pulpit up here. I'm going to get one of them Kojic pulpits. <laughs> Multi-leveled, you know, with goblets. I, I, that's, that's why I wanted to be a pastor is to get me some goblets. You know, I have a whole, like a, a refreshment, like a beverage tray right here. With like three or four goblets. And in one of the goblets is orange juice. You know, they always got like a goblet of orange juice with a, with a handkerchief on top of it. And then another goblet with like ice water with a handkerchief on top of it. I mean, you have 7-Up up there. You know, it's like just a whole beverage counter over here. And, and he'd be preaching and he'd stop. And I'd be out there all thirsty. Just, I want to be a preacher so I can drink orange juice and 7-Up. <laughs> they would let the women preach, but not from up here. She just couldn't stand up here. She could preach down here, though. That's how they made the distinction. Because that's what the Bible says. <laughs> I've never seen that in the Bible anywhere. But if this is the case, then why does Paul say in 1 Timothy 2.12, I do not permit a woman to teach a man. I do not permit a woman to teach a man. Isn't it interesting that You know, I was thinking about Julian of Norwich. Julian of Norwich was a 14th century anchoress. And you know what an anchoress was? The anchorites or the anchoresses? What they would do is they say, I want to spend the rest of my life in prayer. So they would go into a corner in the church and somebody would build a wall and wall them in. Just a little latch, a little where they can slide in their food. And they would live there for the rest of their lives in silence, just meditating and praying all day, every day. That's all they did. And Julian of Norwich did this. She was an anchoress. She lived the rest of her life, but towards the end of her life, she wrote a book. She got all of these revelations, and she wrote a book called Revelations of Divine Love. And in that book, God gave her marvelous things, amazing things, powerful things, life-changing things. And she wrote this book, and uh, when they opened the wall after she died... They found the book. The first thing they did was throw it into the fire and burn it. Why? Because they were afraid that a man might read it and learn something. And then a woman would have taught a man. 
Thankfully, she made two copies. <laughs> and somebody found the second copy and hid it and waited for another day and another time. <laughs> and decades later, somebody found it and published it. It was the biggest scandal. A book written by a woman. Can you believe that? The nerve of these women thinking they can write books. Why would Paul say, I don't allow a woman to have authority over a man? I don't allow a woman to teach a man. The same reason he says, slaves, obey your masters. Because even though he knows that in Christ there's neither male nor female, he also does not try to destroy these cultural mechanisms like slavery and like the inferiority of women. Instead, he says, slaves, submit. He says, Women, submit. Why? Because you're inferior? No. Because the time is coming when God is going to release the revelation that there's no distinction. But until that time, submit. But let me tell you something. That time is now. That time is now. I'm saying that God is releasing the revelation of this. And he's causing women to rise up and take their place in the body of Christ. And he's breaking off inferiority. And let me tell you something, ladies. Your first place in the body of Christ, your first place of authority is the place of prayer. Let me tell you something. Everything changes when the women of the church start praying. Everything changes when the women of the church take their place as prayer warriors in the house. And let me tell you something. There's just something that the men of the house can't do. There's a place of intercession and prayer that the men cannot lead the house to. And I'll explain that. (laughs) Acts chapter 16. You don't have to turn there. Paul knows that God is sending him on this mission trip. He's way over here in Antioch. And God speaks to him and says, go. There's a tugging in his heart. And he feels pulled towards the northern Galatian region. He packs up. He spends months raising money. He gathers his team and they leave. They head up to this city called Bithynia. And he gets there. And the Holy Spirit says, don't preach. It took them several weeks to get there, probably. And the Holy Spirit said, nope, this isn't the place. Travels another several weeks and comes to this place called Mysia. And the Holy Spirit says, nope, this ain't the place either. He is a, an apostle that's just wondering. I don't know where I'm going or why. Comes weeks all the way over to this other place called Troas. He bounced around the northern Galatian region. Gets over here to Troas. And the Holy Spirit says, no, shut your mouth. Goes to sleep and has a dream. And in the dream, there's a man of Macedonia. And that man of Macedonia is saying, come over here and help us in Macedonia. What is revealed to him in that dream is that there's a cry in the Macedonian region that God is responding to. Do you hear that? There is a cry in the Macedonian region that God is responding to. You need to understand that God grabbed the most powerful apostle in the world at that time, grabbed him by the ear and drug him all the way across the northern Galatian region and set him up here in Troas. Why? Because there was a cry in the Macedonian region that God was responding to. The cry was not in Bithynia. The cry was not in Mysia. The cry was not in Troas. The cry was in the Macedonian region. And he began to hear that cry in the spirit once he was positioned to enter into Macedonia. He woke up in the middle of the night and said, 
we got to go to Macedonia now. They enter into the region of Macedonia. It was very close by. They just had to cross a little body of water to get there. And when they go into Macedonia, they come to the city called Philippi. And as usual, he looks for a synagogue. Remember, I said Paul would always go to the synagogue, which was the Jewish, pla- the, the, the Greek-speaking place of Jewish worship. And he would take out the God-fears. So he's thinking, I'm going to have me a church of God-fears in a few minutes. So he asks in Philippi, where's the, where's the synagogue? So there's no synagogue here. What do you mean? I saw a man of Macedonia saying, come over here and help us. There's got to be a synagogue. Nope, sorry, no synagogue. Now, whenever there's no synagogue in a city, it means that they could not pull together 10 Jewish men. It took 10 Jewish men to make a synagogue. If there were not, t- there could be 100 Jewish women, but if there's not 10 Jewish men, there's no synagogue. So if there's no synagogue, you know what there would be? There'd be a group of women who would go to the river and pray. That's all. The women knew if they came into a city and there's no synagogue, go to the river. The women would go to the river to pray. That's the only thing that was happening in that city that had anything to do with God. Was a group of women by the river praying that God would do something in their region. A group of women by the river seeking the face of God that God would bring change to their region. And this group of women, they prayed and they sought the face of God. And God's heart was so stirred that he reached all the way over here in Antioch and grabbed Paul, the greatest apostle of his generation, by the ear and drug him all the way over to this city for this group of women. Today, a great apostle wouldn't go to that city unless there was already a church of 10,000 people there that would give him a $50,000 honorarium. But God drugged the greatest apostle of his generation all the way over to that city and noticed there wasn't a woman in his dream. Come over here to Macedonia. Paul would have woke up and rebuked that dream and went back to sleep. He would have told his team, we ain't going to Macedonia. There's temptation over there. We're not going to Macedonia. Nowhere near. I had a dream of a woman. I rebuked that foul temptress of Macedonia. There's a spirit. There's a spirit of temptation in Macedonia. We're not going there. But he sees a man, which is simply symbolic of the cry. But when he gets there, he finds a group of women by the river praying. One of them, her name was Lydia. And she was called a seller of purple. She was a businesswoman. That whole region changed. Why? Because of a group of women by the river praying. The whole Philippian church was formed. Why? Because of that group of women by the river praying. Revival came to that city. We're still talking about what God did in that city. We're reading the letter to the Philippians. Why? Because of that group of women gathered by the river Seeking the face of God to change their region. Women, do you know how powerful you are? That if just a few of you would gather by the river and pray for God to change your region, that God will come from the ends of the earth. He'll send revival from the ends of the earth. He'll change cities. Why? If he can just find a group of women gathered by the river seeking God for change in their region. Let me tell you the power of a praying woman. A praying woman can change a city. A praying woman can change a family. A praying woman. Let me tell you something about a praying woman. I know about praying women because my mother was one. 
My father backslid when I was two years old. And I, one of the, the memories I have when my dad was, when I was two years old, my dad sat on a pair of scissors. And I remember the bathrobe he was wearing that day. And uh, he came out and he had this funny look on his face. And my mom said, how come you're not getting ready for church? He said, I sat on a pair of scissors. I remember it like it was yesterday. I was two years old. And uh, my mom took him in the room, closed the door. Apparently she did some surgery, patched him up. And uh, then she came out and said, all right, boys, your daddy's going to stay home. And uh, we're going to go to church. And I looked in the room, and my dad was on his knees crying out to God. And my mom said, your daddy said he's going to pray the whole time we're at church. He's going to seek the face of God. And I remember us leaving to the sound of my father praying and coming home to the sound of my father praying. He didn't leave his knees the whole time we were at church. He sought the face of God. Shortly after that, he backslid. He just walked away. He said, I'm done. I'm done. It's like he went through a midlife crisis and he was only in in his mid-twenties. I want to live a different kind of life. Going out with his friends and partying and all of this stuff. He was in college, you know, going to college and hanging out with his college friends and partying. And and my mother would be home just crying out to God. I remember my mother would weep and cry out to God. She'd put us to bed and then go into the living room and just begin to weep and cry out to God and call on the Lord and call out his name and speak in tongues and cry. She was travailing for him. I didn't know what was going on. I'd come in and her mommy, are you okay? She said, I'm fine, baby. Go back to bed. And she would travail and travail into the night. Half the night, my mother would be up in the living room just travailing in prayer. It got to the point where everybody around her started telling her, let him go. Let him go. Let him go. But she would go home and get on her knees and God would say, don't you dare let that man go. Amen. You pray him through. Everybody else said, let him go. But God said, you pray him through. You pray him through. She prayed and she prayed and she wept and she wept. And you know that when I was 13 years old, God answered her prayer. She cried out to God for 11 years for that man. And believed and believed and believed. And you know what happened? When I was 13 years old, I'll never forget the night my dad came to church. Couldn't believe it. It was a Friday night service. Not thinking anything. Why is my dad here? I remember thinking, this is strange. My dad has not donned the door of a church in years. Pastor was preaching, choose you this day whom you will serve. Choose today. Not tomorrow, today. Make a choice today. Who are you going to serve? And before the sermon was even over, my dad ran down the altar, down the aisle, with his face in his hands, sobbing, and fell on his face at the altar and rededicated his life to the Lord. Amen. I was like, no way. I almost couldn't believe it. Is that my daddy? Before that, my dad was real mean, real nasty. You guys can't imagine my dad mean and nasty because, you know, you see him now and he's just the <laughs> kindest, sweetest, gentlest person you've ever met. No, that wasn't the daddy that I grew up with. But I came home that night. We came home that night. And my dad sat at the table and opened his hymnal and started singing hymns. Amazing grace for the whole evening. Like, what in the world is going on? What happened? Every night he'd come home and just sit at the table and start singing hymns. Just open his hymn book and he would just have his own little worship service. That was before praise and worship, you know, and words on the screen. <laughs> you know, we had a hymnal when I was growing up, a hymn book. Turn to hymn number 179. 
A mighty fortress is our God. A mighty fortress is our God. That was our worship. Me and my brother would be back there beatboxing. A mighty... You know? <laughs> like, we're going to spice this up. <laughs> she prayed him through it. She prayed him through. She prayed him back in. She, You know the power of a praying woman? The power of Because there was a woman that would go by the river and pray for her husband and not give up. There was a woman that would cry, yes, but she cried tears of faith. She would not give up. Would she feel desperate sometimes? Yes, but she took that desperate desperation to the Lord. She would not give up. You know what it was like giving birth? See, let me tell you why a woman can do this more powerfully than a man can. Because there's a mechanism in you that men don't have. An ability to conceive things and carry them full term and then push them out of your body. There is an ability. Come on, somebody. There's so, and I don't care if you've had a baby or not. That mechanism's in you. I mean, just get pregnant. You'll see it's there. It'll turn on. It'll just click on. I'm telling you that you can enter into that in the spirit, even if you've never entered into it in the natural. I'm telling you, you can be a spiritual mother even before you're a natural mother, but you've got to learn how to get pregnant with truth and carry it full term. You've got to stop aborting truth. You've got to stop aborting your vision. You've got to stop aborting God's promises. You've got to carry it. My brother got to high school and decided he wanted to be a thug. So he went through the process of getting certified. got his thug license. It got to the point where I would see him and if I didn't recognize him, I'd be scared for a second. You know, I'd see him on the street. Oh Lord, I'm crossing the street. Oh, that's my brother. What are you doing? (laughs) Can you look any meaner? One of his favorite pastimes was hot boxing. You ever hot box, Nate? Tell the truth. Come on, tell the truth. Oh, oh, yeah, I got a witness over there. Yeah, I got a... <laughs> how, many, how many former hotboxers? How many have been delivered from hotboxing? Yeah, we, I see, we got a few. We got a few. We got a few. Let me, let me explain what hotboxing is. Hotboxing is when three or four people would go inside a vehicle, roll up all the windows, turn off the motor, and light up the biggest blunts you've ever seen in your life and smoke them until the whole car would be filled with this cloud of glory. You couldn't even see in the car. And I would find my brother hotboxing with his friend. I would just see, I would see his car, and all you would see in the windows is white. And I think the first time I saw it, I thought the car caught on fire. I didn't know what was happening. I thought, oh, Lord, Josh, your car's on fire. You know? But all of a sudden, I saw his window come down, and his head came out. Bro, what's that? You know? I mean, it was just crazy, you know? That was him. My mother wept. And I mean, I would come in and she'd be beating the bed and calling out his name and crying over him for hours. But not mourning. I'm talking about praying. I'm talking about praying. I mean, she went into the same kind of travail for my brother that I saw her go through for my dad. I mean, she was praying. She was praying. And it's funny because the thing is, when you see something like that happen... You can't help but at certain times feel hopeless. And when you feel hopeless about things, 
you stop pressing for them. See, there's something about us where when we just feel like something is outside of our reach, and especially us men, we're more more prone to discouragement. Because we just feel like, well, I guess that's the path he chose. (laughs) Lord, I just trust you to reach him in your time. That's not how a mama acts. No, not my baby. Not my baby. Not my... See, the thing about your mama, your mama is the only one who really got your back. Amen. I mean, if the police come looking for... Listen, if the police come looking for you and your girlfriend answers the door, she can be like, he's right over there. They haven't even told you what they're there for yet. He's like, he's over there. He's in that room right there. You know? I mean, your friend answers the door, he's, right, he's hiding over there. But if your mama answers the door, I ain't seen him. I don't know what you're talking about. You know? Your son has 12 kilos of cocaine. Well, I hope you find him. I don't know where he is. They leave. She comes in the room. Boy, get this stuff out of my house. <laughs> your mama got your back. She will believe for you. She said, well, my baby just needs some help. He just needs some help. He's going through a tough time in life. He just, yeah, a mama would just believe and pray. And I would come in every day. And my, my mother, when I'd be, be talking, and all of a sudden, she'd just break down and start bawling. i say, what's wrong, Mom? What's wrong? What happened? See, let, women, let me tell you something. When you cry, let me tell you what a man feels when you cry. It doesn't matter what you're crying about. <laughs> and it doesn't matter how that man is related to you. There is something emotional that happens in a man when a woman cries. And let me tell you, let me define that emotion out. This is exactly what a man thinks when a woman cries. I just lost. I just, the argument's over. I lost. I lost. I just lost. So my mother would cry and I'd think, okay, I don't know what I did, but I was wrong. <laughs> it's my fault. I lost. Whatever fight is in us is gone. When a woman cries, when, when my wife cries, it's over. I just lost. That argument is over. I thought I had a point, but I can't remember it right now. <laughs> you know? I'm like, Mom, what's wrong? She said, I'm hurting for Joshua. She prayed and prayed and prayed, and then she called me into her room one day. She was praying. She said, the Lord said, you're the one. I said, I'm the one for what? She said, you're the one that's going to reach your brother. So I thought, yeah, I'm going to reach my brother. So I started trying to preach to him. <laughs> All I did was push him further away. Started giving him a big brother talk. What are you doing with your life? He's like, psh, psh, psh. <laughs> I remember I ran into him in the theater one time, in a movie theater, him and his friends. And he goes, hey, bro, good to see you. Let me run to the bathroom real quick. I stood there for 20 minutes waiting for him to come out of the bathroom. He and his friends had went back into the theater and out the emergency exit. I asked him, I said, what'd you do that for? He said, I just had to get away from you. I didn't want to be anywhere near you. When I saw you, I said, I'm out. Why? Because he's going to preach to me. He's going to judge me. He's going to criticize me. He's going to tell me what's wrong with my life. And I kept going back to my mom. I said, I'm trying. She said, nope, the Lord said it's you. She kept travailing and kept interceding. And I'm just getting frustrated. And then one night, the Lord spoke to me and said, go into your brother's room. About one o'clock in the morning, go into your brother's room. I got up. I went in my brother's room. I was about 21 years old. My brother's about 19 years old. I said, okay, Lord, what am I doing in here? He said, pray over your brother's bed. And I'm like, anything I want? <laughs> All right, I got this one, Lord. Put my hand on his bed. I said, Lord, don't let him sleep on this bed till he gets his life right with you. 
Give him a stone for a pillow till he gets his life right with you. Give him no rest day or night on this bed till he gets his life right with you. I go back to sleep. Three o'clock in the morning, my brother knocks on my door. Ben, Ben, what? Waking me up for? Hey, wake me up at 8 a.m. I got to go to work tomorrow. I said, all right, cool. 8 a.m., I get up, open the door to his room, and the door almost hit him in the head because he's on the floor. So what are you doing on the floor? I couldn't sleep in that bed. I mean, I laid down on that bed. I just tossed and turned and tossed and turned. I couldn't sleep. I, if, you know, I was just troubled. So finally, I got on the floor. I fell fast asleep. I was like, yes. Yes, Lord. Now you're working. Lord, shall I, shall I pray over the floor too? He slept on that floor for two weeks. And two weeks later, he gave his life to Jesus Christ. And that was 15 years ago. And in a couple months, he and his wife and his four children are moving to Washington, D.C. to plant a church. And he is going to come preach here on June 24th before he leaves and share with us what God has done in his life. What a powerful testimony, what God brought him out of. I mean, he went from hotboxing to planting churches. You know why? Because my mother wouldn't stop praying. My mother wouldn't give up. All the rest of us were discouraged, going in and out of discouragement, trying to figure out what to do and, and how to do it. But my mother said, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray. Let me tell you something, women. There is nothing that can quantify the power of your prayers. Nothing that can quantify the power of your prayers for your family. Nothing that can quantify the power of your prayers for your children. Nothing that can quantify the power of your prayers. If, if what God is looking for is just a few women who are willing to come to the river and pray. You ever heard of the Welsh Revival? You know why that revival came to Wales? You know what they found out? There was an old invalid woman who couldn't even get off of her back. She was bedridden, and for years, all she did was lay on that bed and cry out to God to send revival to her region. The evangelist got all the glory, but it was actually this little old lady that prayed it in. You want to see God things change? God change things? Take your place. Take your place. Take your place. There's nothing that can quantify the power of your prayers. And not only your ability to receive the kingdom, but to release it. There's nothing that God can't use you to do if you make a decision. I'm going to pray and I'm not going to quit. Let's bow our heads. What I want to do in this time is I want to break inferiority off of you. I want to break discouragement off of you. I'm going to break hopelessness off of you. I want to break off of you that sense of powerlessness, that sense of discouragement, because some of you have stopped pressing and some of you have stopped reaching and you've stopped praying. And, and, and uh, it's because you just don't think your prayers are very powerful. You just don't know how powerful you are. You've experienced disappointment and heartache. You've seen things fall apart and 
It's discouraged you, but God wants to encourage you right now. He wants to break that inferiority off. You are not less than anyone. You are not less than. Some of you here are single mothers. Let me tell you how powerful you are. I know you might feel like, but I wish my kids had a daddy. Yes, okay, I I agree. That would be good. But that doesn't mean that you're any less powerful. You are, God put you in, in your kid's life and you have the power to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. If you make a decision to pray them all the way into their destiny, make a decision to pray them all the way into their destiny. Some of you wives here, there's stuff you wish your husbands would change and stuff you wish your husbands would have and stuff you wish your husbands would do. And, and, and all you know how to do is to complain to your husbands and tell them what you wish they could, they did and, and didn't do. Let me tell you something. Stop talking to your husbands and start talking to God. Start talking to God about your husband. Just go into the prayer closet and pray him through. Go into the prayer closet and pray your kids through. What God is looking for is a group of women that are willing to go to the river. A group of women that are willing to go to the river. Say, I know that there's not much happening in this town, but if we can just get to the river and pray. God will call revival from the ends of the earth and bring it here. If we can just get some women to the river to pray. If we can get some women to rise up and take their place, rise up and take their place. I'm telling you, it's time for you to rise up and take your place. God has a destiny for you. God has a destiny for you and he has a powerful place for you in his end time program. This is the day. This is the day in which God is pouring out his spirit on all flesh. Our sons and daughters are prophesying. You are the sons and daughters who are going to prophesy. You're going to speak the word of the Lord. He's going to put his word in your mouth and you're going to speak it with power. You're going to rise up and say the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to set at liberty those who are bound, to open prison doors for those in chains of darkness, to give them beauty for ashes, strength for weakness, the oil of joy for the spirit of mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. God is anointing you today. He's anointing you today. He's causing you to rise up and take your place. Come on, just make a decision in your heart right now. I'm going to take my place. I'm going to take my place. I want you just to begin to pray right now. I want you to respond to this message right now just by opening your mouth and beginning to pray. Make a decision. You're going to break free from discouragement. You're going to break free from disillusionment. You're going to break free from frustration. Come on, there's all kinds. Of, I see it. It's, it's wrapped around you. Some of you, so many layers of disappointment and discouragement and frustration and, and powerlessness that's wrapped all around you. You can't live that way another day. You can't live that way another hour. You weren't created to live that way. You are created to live in power. You are created to live victorious. You are created to live victorious. Come on, just break free from it right now. I just break it off of you by the power of the Holy Spirit. I break it off of you by the power of the Holy Spirit. I break it off of you by the power of the Holy Spirit. But you got to make a decision. I'm not living that way anymore. I'm not living that way anymore. Come on, make a decision. I'm not living that way anymore. I'm not living that way anymore. I'm not living that way anymore. I'm not going to live the powerless life anymore. I'm not going to live the discouraged life anymore. I'm not going to live the disappointed life anymore. Some of you need to forgive somebody that hurt you. That person has power over you until you forgive them. Make a decision. He's not going to have power over me anymore. You're not going to have power over me anymore. Come on, make a decision. Make a decision. Make a decision. Speak it out. Speak it out. Speak it out. Speak it out. You are more than conquerors. 
You are more than conquerors. I just release the blessing of the Lord over you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Husbands, just pray for your wives right now. Just pray blessing and strength and power. They're battling so much. They deal with so much. They deal with stuff on behalf of the family that you don't even know they're dealing with. Stuff is coming against them that you don't even know is coming against them. But make a decision right now. I'm going to stand in the gap for my wife. Come on. Pray right now. Pray right now. Pray right now. Hallelujah. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you that there's victory. Thank you that there's a victory. Thank you that some of you, listen, I'm going to open up this altar right now for women in this place right now that just feel discouraged. Some of you just feel discouraged. You feel stuck. You feel powerless. You can't leave feeling that way. You can't leave. You can't carry that another day. And nobody's going to break that off of you. You got to make a decision. I'm not carrying that another second. Come to this altar right now if that's you. Come to this altar. If you're making a decision right now, I'm not going to walk in that anymore. I'm going to break it off. I'm going to break it off. I'm going to break it off. Yes, it's time. It's time. The power of God is coming upon you. The Spirit of God is rising up in you. God is saying this is your hour. This is your day. This is your time to bloom. It's your time to shine. It's your time to shine. It's your time to shine. It's your time to break through. Yes, that's good. That's good. Now listen, I need just a few men of God to come behind these young ladies and just... Don't put your hand on their back, just on their shoulder, just a hand on their shoulder, and just pray and intercede. Come on, I need some of the men of God, some of the men of God, some of the men of God. In Jesus' name. Come on, we're going to break you through today. We're not going to let you live discouraged. We're not going to let you live defeated. We're going to lift you up into a place of victory. We're going to lift you up into a place of victory. We're going to lift you up into a place of power. We're going to lift you up into a place of glory. We're going to lift you up into your place. You're going to take your place. You're going to take your place. You're going to take your place. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. This is the time. This is the time. Come on, everybody, just stand up and lift your hands and begin to pray. I want you to open your mouth and begin to pray. This is a powerful moment. These women of God are taking their place right now. This is a powerful moment right now. Open your mouths and seek Him. Jesus, touch right now. Touch right now. Complete victory right now. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Come on, I want you to use your voices this morning. I want you to use your voices. Yes, Lord. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Touch right now. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. This is a powerful moment. This is a powerful moment. You're breaking free. You're breaking free. You're breaking free of all of that junk. All of that junk is breaking off your life. Everything they did to hurt you has failed. Everything they did to destroy you has failed. You you are more than a conqueror. You are victorious today. Today you've risen up above it. You are precious today. You are precious today. You are precious today. You are precious today. The past is washed away today. It's a new day. Come on, come on, don't stop, don't stop. Just lift your voices. I want to hear a roar of prayer out of this house today. I want to hear it, I want to hear it, I want to hear it. Claim your voice back today. Take your voice back today. Take your voice back today. It's time, it's time, it's time, it's time. Hallelujah. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. Lord, you have told me that time, it's time. You're sick of it. You're sick of your daughter's hearts being broken. 
You're tired of looking out and seeing your daughter's hearts broken. You're tired of seeing your daughter's hearts being attacked by discouragement. By unworthiness. You're tired of your hearts, your daughter's hearts being attacked by depression. And you're sick of it and you say no more. You're tired of your daughter's hearts competing, competing affections with him. Daughters, you have placed affections on things that cannot help you. You've been placing your affections on your husband and on the men in your life and on your jobs and your careers. But God has said, no one can compete with me. No one can compete with my affections. And I have come like I did in the temple and overturned the tables. I am coming to do that in your hearts. And I am removing everything. Everything that has blocked you from being in my presence. Everything that has blocked you from seeking me wholeheartedly. I have come to declare myself your husband of your hearts. I have come to declare you the foundation of your hearts. I have come to declare myself king of your hearts. And when the women of this house rise up and declare him king, we are a force to be reckoned with. And he will fill us with his love. And through that feeling, he is going to empower us. And ladies, revival is coming. And it's going to begin with us. It's beginning with us. And we are going to rise and be these fierce creatures that he has called us to be. That he's designed us to be. And we're going to go out and hunt in the darkness. The things that the enemy has stolen... We are going to go into the darkness and take back. So right now, God, I declare freedom over your daughters. I declare freedom from depression. Freedom from heartache. Freedom from disappointment. Freedom from those wounds. God, I declare wholeness over your daughters. Wholeness of their emotions and of their minds. Right now, God is going to heal those wounds that have been there since you've been a little girl. And not only is he going to bind up those wounds, but he's going to leave no scars. There will be no evidence that that wound was even there. No evidence. Daughters, don't ignore his advances. Don't ignore his advance. He's coming after you. He wants to create a romance with you that cannot be topped. It cannot be topped. Don't ignore him. Don't ignore him. He delights in you. You don't understand the depths of his love. So, Father, I pray that you would meet them in their desperation. And like the woman that was hemorrhaging, she reached out in desperation to touch you. And you turned to her and you said, go, my daughter, in peace. For my, your faith has healed you. So, God, I thank you. 
I thank you that your daughters have been touched today and that they are healed and that they are whole and they will walk in your joy and your peace and they will feel more empowered than they have ever felt in their lives. Open their ears and open their hearts. Help them to feel your presence. Help them to feel you walking with them every moment of the day. Wipe their tears and fill them with joy. Give them new dreams and new hopes. We thank you today, Lord, for the work that you're doing. Amen. I want all of you to just lift your hands. You know, this is a season for daughters to arise. And you know what that means? It's not, we're not ignoring men. Men, we need you. We need you to protect us. We need you to activate us. Amen. So right now with your hands lifted, Spirit of God, let your anointing come upon your sons and daughters today. Anointing to prophesy, anointing to preach. Father, even in this small, small sanctuary, God, there are preachers sitting in the front and in the back. There are prophets, apostles. There are evangelists and missionaries, God. Father, raise them up for such a time as this. The word of the Lord is, arise, arise. This is your season. You've been longing and waiting and praying for that time of breakthrough. The Lord says the time has come. The waiting season is over. This season is for you to, for you to rise and grab hold of your destiny, your anointing. So, Father, we pray for all the men in this house with security in their hearts, with love for your daughters, to intercede, to cover, to protect, and activate the women of this house. And, Father, we thank you that it's not going to be 10 years later, 5 years later, a year later, and not even a month later. Father, I thank you. We're going to see women preachers arise from this house. We're going to see women prophets and apostles arise from this house, Lord. So, Father, we thank you for such a time as this. We embrace. Will you just embrace this? We embrace this season, this new season. We embrace it, God. And we bless both men and women. God, we're going to walk with our kingdom authority. No more going back to discouragement and encouragement. We're going to leave behind discouragement's inferiority. But we're going to walk permanently in encouragement and victory. We thank you. We embrace it, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You receive it? You embrace it? Amen? Amen. Anybody, anytime you want, you feel like, Pastor, I got this in me. Come and talk to me. Whether it is business or preaching or prophecy, but I'm not a leader. I'm just, don't worry about it. It's your season. This season is your season. Amen? God bless you. We'll see you next week.